0: So exciting to be with you here today. Hey, we are wrapping up a series today called Good Christian. And if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about this concept of how do you know if you're a good Christian, if you're on track or if you're off track, if you're doing okay, if you're not doing okay. What does it mean in our world today to be a good Christian? Or what does it even mean from the the perspective of other people or from the perspective of God? Does it mean that we that we believe the right things about God and we're working on our theology? Is that what a good Christian does? Is a good Christian, you know, you know avoid, you know, the places that, that the people go, like, you know, the bars and the, and the, and the you know, places, the clubs or whatever, and like, oh, he's a good Christian, she's a good Christian. They don't go there. They don't go out to, you know, after hours with their coworkers and, and drink, you know, alcohol. And does that make you a good Christian? Are, are you a good Christian if if you just... You know, if you're positive and you're happy all the time, does that make you a good Christian? Like, what does it really mean? Like, you, are you wearing Christian T-shirts? Maybe you have a Christian bumper sticker in the back. You know, and people in the back of you can see that you're, you know, the, maybe the Jesus fish. Oh, it's a good Christian, the, the Jesus fish. Some of you are like, what's a Jesus fish? I don't really, I do know. But anyway... Like, what does it mean? And so we've been talking about that, and the first week we talked about how good Christians are trying, uh, they're having a shift in what they want. There's a shift in their desires. They're wanting different things, things that, things that will last forever, and so they're investing their life in different ways. And then week number two, we talked about how good Christians are uh, seeking spiritual community, and they're realizing that they can't do it by themselves, and so they need encouragement and knowledge, and they need someone to hold them accountable and, and someone to come alongside of them and be a good example. And that was two weeks ago. And then last week, we talked about how good Christians are simply trying to live on mission. They're not, it's not just about them, they, they see themselves as ambassadors, right? As Christ's representative to help other people, friends, family members, co workers, neighbors, try to find Christ and step into a relationship. And we said if you don't live on a mission as a Christ follower, eventually you'll become a spiritual consumer of sermons and music and you will bounce from church to church and church to church, like you bounce from restaurant to restaurant to restaurant because you're just simply a consumer. And so that was last week and hopefully I got under, under your skin a little bit. That was my intention. Uh, but here we are today, week number four, we're gonna close this out. Has this been a fun series? Yeah, enjoyable? Hopefully it's been encouraging and challenging at the same time. I just want you to have a barometer, I want you to have sort of like a scale you can look at to say, okay, am I doing good, am I doing bad? So today I want to talk about another idea. It's going to be hard, it's going to be difficult, Uh, but I I want to talk about it because it's heavy on my heart. Years ago, say maybe 10 years ago or so, there was some research done by the Barna Group. George Barna owns an organization uh, that does all kinds of research across the United States in terms of for for people of faith and Christianity, and uh, a book came out of it called UnChristian, and it's basically... These five key concepts that that Christians struggle with. And one of those concepts is being hypocritical. And the reason why unbelievers, according to the research, believe that Christians are hypocritical is because their lifestyle is really no different from the lifestyles of non-Christians. In fact, this is a quote from the book in the chapter on hypocrisy. Most of the lifestyle lifestyle activities of Christians were statistically equivalent to those of non-Christians. Meaning that Christians were just as likely and within a a 30-day period, any 30-day period, Christians were just as likely to visit a pornographic website. They were just as likely to take something that didn't belong to them, which is what's that called? Stealing. They were just as likely to consult a medium or a psychic. They were just as likely to get into a physical altercation or verbal dispute. They were just as likely to drink enough alcohol to be legally drunk. They were just as likely as non-Christians to uh, abuse illegal drugs or prescription pills, they were, and they were just as likely to say something that wasn't true, which is called a lie. <laughs> okay, so, so all of the stats, the, 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 the data out there show that the lifestyle of people who say they're Christians is statistically equivalent to those who say, I'm not a Christian. So naturally, people who are not Christians look at the Christians, who are claiming that, you know, they've got the truth and they have a better way to live and that they're, they're, you know, different, you know, it leads to hypocrisy. Clearly, Christians struggle to live like Jesus. Do you agree, according to the data? Yes or no? Yeah? So I want to talk about that today because I believe good Christians, good Christians in your notes, they're changing. Good Christians are not perfect. They've got a long way to go. But there is a noticeable difference in their life. They're moving away from the person they were before they met Jesus towards becoming a person who's just like Jesus. They're changing. Years ago, I read um, Mere Christianity. Many of you know I I like this book. I really like this book. It actually started as a collection of talks that C.S. Lewis did on the radio in the 1940s. And his audience was not Christians, his audience were skeptics and agnostics and people who were struggling with their faith. And this is the time when Nazi Germany was, you know, going on and the Holocaust and all that stuff. And and in the book, he made a statement that shaped my understanding as as a young Christian and really is the reason why I'm still a pastor today and giving my life to the ministry. He says, now the whole offer with which Christianity makes is this, that we can, if we let God have his way, come to share in the life of Christ. If we do, we shall be sharing a life which was begotten, not made, which has always existed and always will exist. Christ is the Son of God. If we share in this kind of life, we also shall become sons and daughters of God. We shall love the Father as Jesus loves him, and the Holy Spirit will arise in us. He came into this world, that is Jesus, and became a man in order to spread to other men the kind of life that he has by what I would call a good infection. And then he closes the paragraph this way. Every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else powerful idea shape the way I think about why Jesus came into this world like what's the reason what's the purpose the purpose is for me and for you and anyone who says that Jesus is their savior to become a little Jesus by by the good infection his life spreading into my life the Bible word for this is called transform. It's the Greek word metamorpho. We get our English word metamorphosis from this Greek word. It, the best physical illustration that we could come up with or I can come up with was, is the change between a caterpillar into a butterfly. Okay? There's this metamorphosis going on. right? And so literally the Bible teaches that we ought to be transforming from who we were before we met Jesus into this brand new creature. In the same way a caterpillar transforms into a butterfly. In the Bible, Paul says this in a letter that he wrote to a group of Christians in Ephesus in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. He says, I want you to throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life. Okay, that old caterpillar thing that you, you were before you met me, I want you to take it off like a filthy, filthy clothes, filthy rags and throw them away because it's corrupt by lust and deception. Instead, here's what I want you to do. Let the Spirit renew your thoughts and your attitudes. Put on this new nature created to be, say it with me, like God, truly righteous and holy. There's the butterfly. There's the transformation. I want you to throw away this old shell, this old former way of thinking and doing things. And I want you to put on a brand new set of clothes. True true righteousness and holiness. See the transformation? That's what should be happening in all of our lives. Not perfection, no, 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 but there should be a noticeable difference as we learn to follow Jesus. In the book of Galatians, which is another letter that Paul wrote to a group of Christians, we have to understand the New Testament is made up of letters that individual people wrote to specific churches. In the book of Galatians, Paul is writing a letter and he says this to them. He says, But the fruit of the Spirit or the result of living a life filled with the Spirit or in alignment with the Spirit is simply this. Love, joy, and peace. Can we just pause right there and kind of break those down really quick? Because what what, what Paul is talking about here is the very character of Jesus. This this good infection that's supposed to be happening. The life of Jesus spreading to us. Jesus' character is love. What does that mean? Does that mean good feelings? People say, I have fallen out of love. <laughs> no, you don't. You just don't like that person anymore. <laughs> does, biblical, does biblical love include some emotion? Sure it does. But at its core, biblical love is doing what is best for somebody else. That's the character of Jesus. He did what was best for you and he always will. That's love. That's how he could turn around and tell you and I to love our enemies. Anybody feel good about their enemies? No. We don't we don't feel good about them, right? But we can still love them. How? Because we can do what's best for them. Now sometimes what's best for them is going to jail. <laughs> no amen's to that? Cross all of our campuses, online people. <laughs> yeah, you know they, sometimes people need to go to jail. Some of you need to go to jail. And no, I'm just kidding. Maybe you do. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. <laughs> Love is doing what's best for somebody else. That's the character of Jesus. The result of living closely to the Spirit, aligned with the Spirit. We're going to do a whole series on this. Our next series is going to be about the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy. What is joy? Joy is a pervasive sense of well-being rooted in the goodness of God. Not my circumstances. Everybody's got some crappy circumstances going on, don't you? Yes? Anybody? everybody's life just perfect and great no we all got terrible circumstances going on in our life but joy is this pervasive sense of well-being rooted in the goodness of god and not connected to our circumstances you can be incredibly joyful and and be right in the midst of horrible circumstances remember the apostle paul in jail those of you know the bible he's singing he's singing songs in jail he's praising god what's that joy right peace what is peace peace is rest of soul a settledness in your soul rooted in the sovereignty of God. What's the sovereignty of God? That's the biblical word for God's got it all under control, okay? And we need some of that today, don't, right? don't we? Watching things with our government go on and it's like, oh my gosh, the Republicans, the Democrats, the presidents, the, the, who's going to be the judge? <gasps> oh, the sky is falling. Some of you have no peace because you're being discipled by CNN and Fox News. <laughs> but peace is this rest of soul. Rooted in the sovereignty of God that he will make sure it all works out. This is the character of Jesus. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Patience. I struggle with this one. Anybody else? <laughs> patience is simply this idea that I'm going to give you space to mess up. I'm going to allow you an area to, to just goof up. I struggle with that. I, I don't want you to goof up. I want you to do it right the first time. Right? Last night, last night, my oldest son, my oldest child, he's like, Where's the ketchup? It's in the fridge. No, I already checked. No, it's not, it's there. Everybody's, you know how everybody's, the food's hot and everybody's ready to eat? Where's the ketchup? It's in the fridge. Oh, I checked. What's wrong? Your scanner's broken. Anybody else have a kid whose scanner's broken? You scan the fridge, it's broke. <laughs> totally broke. So my wife has to get up. She's so kind. She's so patient. I'm not. I'm like, dude, your scanner's busted. Grow up. Find the ketchup. I'm hungry. Food's hot. Here's my wife gently going over the fridge. She puts it on the table, and I look at my son like this. Oh my God. Jesus help. How, how? How will he ever be able to leave the home? How? Here's why. Now, I love my son, and he's awesome, and he's great. He's going to be okay. but the problem is me. The problem is me. I have no patience. See how that works? The character of Jesus. No one's perfect. We're all moving in a direction, but we're changing. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. How about that one? Hello. Now, why aren't we seeing more of this transformation take place? I believe it's because we have the wrong approach. I believe we've been taking the wrong approach towards transformation. I believe we've been taking the outside-in approach. And the outside-in approach is very simple. What does the Bible say? Let me go try to do it. Ten Commandments? What are the Ten Commandments? Don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't have any other gods before me, obey your father and mother, blah, 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 Okay, let me muster my willpower and go try to obey those things. And then you have the New Testament, a bunch of things in the New Testament. What should you do? What shouldn't you do? Okay, good Christians obey the Bible, so let me go try to muster up my... Willpower to go try to obey what the Bible says, and that is the outside-in approach. That is an attempt to obey the law. And the problem with the external approach or the outside-in approach is that it doesn't work because it doesn't touch the source of the problem. And the source, the source of the problem is my heart. And the source of the problem is your heart. Let's look at what Jesus said in Mark chapter 7. For from, say it with me, within... From within a man, from within a woman, out of a person, say it with me, heart, their soul, their will, their mind, their emotions, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander. Oh, there's more. Pride, foolishness, all these vile things. This is Jesus' master teacher talking here. All these vile things come from where? The government? Your parents? Your teachers? Your coaches? The classroom? Where do they come from? There's a group of people in our country today that don't want to admit that the evil comes from the human heart. It's always the system's fault. It's the parent's fault. The politician's fault. The president's fault. No. No, no, Jesus said, look, the issues with the world and the reason why people fly planes into buildings and kill thousands of people and the reasons why people do what they do is because of the human heart. It's desperately wicked, is what Jesus would teach. These things come from within and they are what defile you. And the outward appearance or the outward or the external approach simply doesn't touch the root of the problem. See, lasting change, if you're taking notes with me, lasting change happens when the heart is changed. We have to have an approach that touches the source of where we are. Jesus taught one time, he said, unless your righteousness, listen to what he said in Matthew chapter five, for I tell you, unless your goodness or your righteousness surpasses or exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees who were the religious leaders of the day, we'll get back to them in a second, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does that mean? He's not talking about the place in the sky with the clouds and streets of gold and no tears. He's not talking about heaven. He's talking about life with God right now. The kingdom of heaven has come near is what Jesus would teach. And what that simply means is that you can now live a different way. You can live with peace and joy. You can live with a sense of security and hope and purpose and meaning before you die, not just after. He said you can't experience that life If your goodness or your righteousness doesn't exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. Now that's a problem because the scribes and the Pharisees were very, very good people externally. In fact, there was no one better than the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders of the day. They fasted twice a week. Didn't eat food twice a week. They gave 10% of all of their money and then added some to the temple. They do way better than us. Listen, I know the numbers at this church, okay? (laughs) A lot of people not giving 10%. Anyway, another story for another day. I'm just saying, okay? The scribes and the Pharisees tied their 10%. They fasted twice a week. Like if the law said to do it, they do it. They crossed every T. They dotted every I. And Jesus says, unless you're better than them, you cannot enter into the life that I have planned for you. We are in some serious doo-doo. If obedience to the law is the way that we change but it does it's not because it doesn't touch the source in fact the way i wrote it is this external obedience to the law does not change the heart one time jesus said in matthew chapter 23 he said some crazy stuff to the not crazy but powerful stuff to the to the sadducees and the pharisees and the scribes In Matthew chapter 23, he says, woe to you guys. Now, you don't want Jesus saying woe to you. It's like, warning, things are not going to go well for you, okay? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful. But listen, but within, in your heart, in your soul, you're full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. What does this mean? Well, back in Jesus' day, a lot of times the graves were above the ground and they were in tombs. And the religious, the the, the rules back then, (laughs) there were a lot of rules, said that if you touched one of these tombs, you would be ceremonially defiled because there was dead people's bones inside of them. For a certain period of time, you would be defiled. So what they would do is they would paint these tombs with what's called whitewash, which is basically white paint. And so that everybody would know where the tombs are and nobody would touch them. So they looked beautiful, but it was like, it was a mechanism to stay away from them. Now what's interesting, at the same time, at this period of history, people felt that if they could touch or brush by or, or grab the robe of one of the scribes and the Pharisees, that their holiness would spread to them. That, that their goodness, their righteousness would come to them. So people would literally try to brush up against the scribes and the Pharisees in hope that they would be sanctified or set apart or holy. Jesus says to the scribes and Pharisees, you are like a whitewashed tomb. When people brush up against you, they defile themselves. Because even though you look beautiful on the outside, in your soul, there's dead stuff. Listen. So you also also outwardly appear righteous to others, but inside, where it counts... You are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This is why I believe there's not a lot of transformation with Christians today. No real significant change. People pray to ask Jesus to be their savior. They had habits of lying before they got saved. And they still have habits of lying after they're saved. People pray to ask Jesus to be their savior. They were addicted to pornography before they were saved. They're still addicted to pornography after they're saved. People were chasing after money and greed and material possessions. They prayed the prayer, accepted Jesus as their Savior. They're still chasing after money and greed. Still an issue in their life. Why? Because we are taking the wrong approach, the outside-in approach. We need a different approach. How do we, how do we change? How do we actually change then? Well, the Bible lays it out for us. We need a different approach. We need actually an inside-out approach to transformation. And that's what Jesus would teach. And that starts with the heart. So the first thing we have to do, if we wanna take an inside out approach to transformation, is open up our heart to God. We gotta say, God, here's my heart. I invite you in, the source. My heart is desperately wicked. If I'm gonna change, I need you to come right here and fix what's broken inside of me, because out of my heart, I live. Listen to what the Psalmist said, Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Come on, a little bit better, hang with me. And know my heart. First thing in the morning sort of stuff. God, I'm here. Another day. Thank you so much. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. First, first, search my heart and test my anxious thoughts probe inside of me because the problem in my life again is not the boss it's not the co-workers it's not the weather it's not the politicians it's not the problem in my life is me the reason i'm stressed out the reason i'm worried the reason i'm fearful the reason i'm angry is my heart Amen. search me god test me know my anxious thoughts point out in me that anything that offends you where have i gone wrong god and lead me along the path of everlasting life. This is, this is where we start. The reason I do my devotions every morning, and, and I really do do them every morning, vacation, whether I'm on a mission trip, vacation, whether it's Saturday, Sunday, whether I'm preaching or not preaching, every morning I get up and the first thing I do is I open the scriptures, I go to my place in the kitchen, and I begin my day with God. Why? Because I'm disciplined? Maybe. Maybe I have a habit. I would like to tell you, I would put forward that the reason I'm consistent with my time alone with God is because I am self-aware and I know that if I don't allow God to search my heart, pride, selfishness, perhaps some foolishness, perhaps some lust will creep in and will destroy my family and my ministry. How many times have we seen it happen? In politicians' lives, pastors' lives, business leaders, community leaders? Why? Because they're not saying, God, search my heart. Point out anything inside of me that's not right, and lead me in the way that's everlasting. You must guard your heart. And you must start there. That's the inside-out approach to transformation. I would call this phase the phase of discovery. You're discovering what's not right in your heart. That leads us into step number two, which is to repent. So when the psalmist says, lead me into the way of everlasting, now I've got to turn from that way. Now that Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the Father say, okay, here's what's wrong. You're you're being a big, giant, selfish jerk (laughs) to your wife. Okay? To your husband, whoever. And you need to, and now I have to repent. Now, repentance is this, has gotten a bad rap. We, we, or maybe it's just misunderstood. Repentance, people think of that word and they think, uh, is that like when you're crying and sad because you did something wrong? No, not really. It could be. You, there could be some tears. There could be some sadness. But really the word, the Greek word is metanoia, and it means to change your mind. It means to change directions. Listen to what Jesus taught when he started preaching. This is his first message, Jesus. Then, from then, Jesus began to preach, repent, turn, change the way you think about your sins. Now, what does that mean? Particular sins? Eh, yeah, maybe. But more of the way you're doing life. Remember what Paul said, throw off your former way of life your old sinful nature, repent of the way you've been doing your sexuality, repent of the way you've been doing your finances, repent of the way you've been handling your relationships and the jealousy, and repent of the way you've been slandering and gossiping people, repent about how you've been doing things, and turn to God, this is the message of the gospel, and turn to God, For the kingdom of heaven is near. Now again, that's not talking about the clouds and the angels and all the streets of gold. That's like after we die sort of stuff. This is different. What Jesus is saying here is repent of the way you've been doing your life and turn into a brand new way of doing life right now before you die. Paths of righteousness and peace. Living in a way where you can actually have joy in the midst of difficulty living in a way where you can actually love those who've hurt you and forgive those who are against you totally different way living without fear and anxiety Jesus talks so much about that repent turn and live in the kingdom of God that's an inside-out approach. That's repentance is acknowledging to God, I have done it all wrong in this particular area, and I'm going to turn away from how I thought it should go into the way you should think it, will, you think it should go, and now I'm going to live in the kingdom of God. That's repentance. Number one, discovery. Number two is the turning phase. And then that leads us into, very easily into the third step, which is to take God's truth into our minds repentance is changing the way you think so we need a new way to think well where are we going to get that we're going to get that from god's word let me explain something really quick that's i think so critical for people to understand you have a character and i have a character right now you are a type of person i'm a type of person and the, the way that we've become that type of person is through our choices okay so in your notes there you see a little diagram choices here's what i mean you are who you are today because of the accumulation of your choices that's your character. Have you ever heard somebody say, he's the kind of guy that would give you the shirt off his back? Anybody heard that? Yeah? Yes? No? Am I crazy? What is that? What is that? that, that that's, a, that's a statement about a person's character. What do they mean? He is the kind of guy who would do anything for you. He'd drop what he's doing. He would sacrifice for you. He'd give it to you before he keeps it for himself. Right? A person who helps. So how do you know that? How do you know that he's the kind of guy that would give you the shirt off his back? Well, here's what I've done. I've watched his behavior over the last five years. I've watched his choices. And he continuously gives and serves and sacrifices for others. Now flip it around. He's the kind of guy that if you don't watch your back, he'll take, what? He'll take something from you. In business, he'll put himself first. First. You turn your you turn your head, he'll steal from you. Ooh. How do you well, well, how do you know? I've watched. I've seen he did it to my neighbor. He did it to my friend who's a business partner with him. And I've heard he did it to this friend. And, and that. He's the kind of guy who, if you turn your head and you don't watch your back, he'll take from you. That's a statement of what? That's a statement of character. He's the type of person that would steal. How do you know? Choices? This is why when you apply for a job, the person who, who's interviewing you calls your what? Your references. Why do they call your references? Because they want to know about choices. What type of person are you? What kind of character? When you go to rent an apartment, they call your references. Does she pay her rent on time? Does he take, did he take care of the place over the last three years? Well, you see where I'm going? Character. It's an accumulation of choices. So when somebody comes to me and says, man, I want to change. Man, I, I, I abuse my spouse. I do. I, I, abuse, I abuse her. I, I, I get physical. I, I yell. I scream. I cuss. I, do. I, want, I don't want to do it anymore. I want to be a good person. I want to be a good man. Help me, Pastor Danny, to change my choices. I say, well, we're not going to focus on your choices because that's the wrong place. See, choices are a byproduct Of something else choices will take care of themselves if you work on some other things this is why if people when people focus on choices a lot of of us do this with diet we'll say "Man, I want to be I want to lose weight I want to be in shape and and we mean it we got all kinds of willpower we make a commitment and we're like I'm not gonna eat the ice cream anymore I'm done with it I mean it and and we do we do mean it and then and then and then 24 hours goes by and we are into that half a gallon of chocolate ice cream like no other I mean we just what happened What happened? 12 hours earlier? Here's what happened. You went, at the, you went at the transformation through your will. And you meant it. And you're like, I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna eat it anymore. I'm not gonna look at that porn anymore. I'm not gonna eat those chips anymore. I'm not gonna oh, I'll lose my temper anymore. I'm, I'm and you meant it, and, and you had good intentions. But we don't change by focusing on our will. So what else is there to focus on? Well, we also have our feelings. We are emotional people. Why did you hit her? I was mad. Why did you send that email? Wait a second. That email might cost you your job. Why did you send it? Well, th- this this whole organization they just they I just keep getting overlooked and blah blah. So I, I wrote the email because I was upset. Our emotions drive our choices. Do you believe this? Yes or no? Come on. But you can't focus there either because emotions are like wet noodles. You ever try to get your hands around a wet, oily noodle? You know, you're cooking a pot, you put the oil in there, you're trying to get one out to see if it's done and it keeps falling off and falling off. Those are emotions, they're squiggly and wiggly and they just go all over the place. And they change, right? One day you feel up, next day you're down. Some people call this bipolar, I'm sure it's a real thing, but I think all of us struggle with it at some degree. Yes, I'm, bi- I'm a little bipolar myself. It's like some days I'm up, some days I'm down. Like, it's all over the place. So people come in and I tell them, I say, you got, some, you got some toxic emotions that are creating these terrible choices. Well, then I better focus on my feelings. No, 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 no. Don't focus there. You won't be able to capture those puppies. They're all over the place. So then what's left? There's only one other place, one other thing. And that is our thoughts. Our thoughts. I've thought long and hard about this, Guys. We have two places in our life where we have ultimate freedom. The food that we put in our mouth, like, like, like today, no one's going to unwrap that burrito and shove it, uh, shove it down your throat. I'm telling you, they're not. You will unwrap that puppy and get into that burrito that's as big as your head. You will. You will. Or whatever you eat. It's your choice. Freedom of will when, we have, when it comes to food. The other area where we have ultimate freedom, is what we allow to occupy our minds. Don't ever forget that. No one can make you think anything. Not me, not your spouse, no one. Now, people can try, and they can try to manipulate you and get you to think certain ways, but you ultimately have the choice of what to allow in your mind. Even the devil, even our enemy, the devil, all he can do is put a thought there. You have the choice whether or not to entertain it, bring it in, Or kick it out. You have ultimate freedom when it comes to your mind. Why is it so important? Because our mind and our thoughts and what we think about life and how we understand things that happen to us and understand things that happen to the world, in the world, those thoughts create and generate feelings. And you really can't have a feeling without a thought triggering the feeling. Let me give you an example. Why why are you angry today? Some of you are angry. Why are you angry? There's a reason you're angry. And maybe it's political. Maybe it's all this stuff you've been watching, you know, the CNN and Fox and all this stuff. And the reason you're angry is because you, that person, said this and that person did this and nobody's listening. And what's that? That's a thought. And that thought, he shouldn't have and she shouldn't have and whatever, has created this emotion. And the emotion will drive a choice. Last week, I was listening to a podcast and I give you a great example of how this works. This guy named Ed, he's got this show called, it's just a podcast. Anyway, his dad died when he was 57 or something like that of a massive heart attack. So he was 31 when it all happened. And so what he did in response to his father's death, he went to the doctor and said, Dude, look, look, do every test you can do on my heart. My dad just passed away at a young age. I want to know if I have his problems. So the doctor did, and it came back, the test came back, and he said, Man, you've got the heart of like a 65-year-old, or you know, what's you know, what's what's going on? And so they started talking. And the doctor said this to Ed. Powerful, powerful moment. He said, Ed do you have a daughter? He said, yeah. How old is she? Four. He said, Ed, do you want to walk her down the aisle? He said, yeah, man, absolutely. He said, Ed, if you continue your eating patterns and your exercise patterns, or lack thereof, some other man will walk your daughter down the aisle. And some other man will be living with your wife. And the house that you built her. And in that moment, he was 31 at the time, he became an exercise fanatic and a, and a nutrition freak. And so you if you look him up, his name's Ed Milet. he's like jacked, he's like ripped, he's like 50 now. That was like 20 and 19 years ago. He's just this crazy, you know, fitness guy. What happened? The doctor gave him a thought, an image of him walking down. He even says when, when he's tempted to, to eat poor foods or whatever it is, fried foods, he'll say, walk your daughter down the aisle. And it snaps him and triggers this emotion which makes, forces him, helps him to make a better choice. This is how people overcome alcohol. This is how people overcome drugs. This is how people overcome fit, hitting their spouse domestic violence. This is how people overcome anything in their life that they want to get rid of. This is how transformation happens. How did Jesus put it? The master teacher? I mean, this is all from him, by the way. In John chapter 8, he said it this way. Jesus said, if you hold to my teachings, which are found in the New Testament, right here, if you want to know what Jesus taught, you just pick up the New Testament and just read it. If you hold to my teachings or obey my teachings, follow my teachings, you'll really be my disciples. Why? Why will, you really, why will you become the type of person who will live their life as Jesus would live it if he were us? That's what a disciple is, a student. One who's just like the master. Why? Watch this. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. What's that mean? We take the truth of God's word into our mind and we begin to think accurately about the world and ourselves and God and people and that those thoughts generate incredible emotions like love and joy and compassion. And those incredible emotions trigger great actions, which is how we can end up loving our neighbors. I'm sorry, loving our enemies and our neighbors. Sometimes our enemy is our neighbor. <laughs> how? How do you become the type of person that would do that? You take God's truth into your mind and it sets you free. It sets you free from fear. Some of you are wrapped up in fear. You would love to get rid of it. You just, you have to go through the process of change that I just showed you. Some of you are wrapped up in anger, so angry. Some of you are wrapped up in lust. It's gotten to the point of addiction. Can't go a day without it. For some of you, it's a substance, just dominating your life. How do you change? You take the truth of God's word into your mind, into your heart, and it triggers proper emotions which lead to great actions or better actions and you're set free. Here's my question, where do you need to change today? I'm trying to help you be a good Christian. Where do you need to change? The statistics show that there is no real difference between people who say they're Christians and non-Christians. I don't, want to be, I don't want that to be me. I want there to be a noticeable difference in my life. How about you? I want to be the person that, I want to be that little Christ that C.S. Lewis talked about. I want love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control to be naturally flowing out of my life. Where do you need to change? Now, here's, here's where this is at. If I'm the quarterback, I handed the ball off to you, you gotta take it and run with it you got to take what you heard and run down the field with it. If you don't, you won't change. By the way, how does obedience fit into all this? Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. He wasn't down on obedience to the law. Here's how it fits. If I go through the training process that I just talked about, this inside-out approach, right? Search my heart, repentance, take God's truth into my mind and heart, set free. I actually become the type of person who will naturally obey what jesus said i don't have to grid myself i don't have to gird myself i don't have to get my willpower together i just i am the type of person who simply doesn't lie i'm the type of person that simply doesn't cheat on their spouse well how you're obeying the script jesus said don't cheat on your spouse jesus you know the bible says don't steal and now i'm naturally the type of person who wouldn't do that how are you really trying hard no i'm not trying hard I just i think differently i feel differently And so I take actions. I'm the the type of person that, and you're the type of person that naturally wouldn't do those things. So obedience to the law becomes a byproduct of becoming the right type of person. Does that make sense? This is how we change. It's an inside out approach and good Christians are on this path and they're not all the way through it. They're not butterflies yet. Some Some are further than others, but they're certainly not caterpillars. They have thrown off this former way of life, their sinful nature, and they are putting on the new nature by being renewed in the spirit of their minds and their attitudes. Now, let me wrap up by saying this. All of this is possible only because of Jesus. Like, your transformation, you changing into that butterfly is only possible because Christ gave his life on the cross. The problem was sin, it really was. And sin is, yeah, in particular, sins, lying, cheating, stealing, whatever, but it's it's more of a way of doing life. That's the problem. When, when Adam and Eve chose to disobey God, they said, God, I'm gonna do things my way. Yeah, of sure, of course they ate the fruit. Okay, there was a specific sin they did. But it was more or less a mindset that said, I don't need you. I'm gonna do this my way. Like, you're probably holding out on me, you're probably withholding something good, and so I'm just gonna take up life from my own perspective. And that sort of mindset or mentality separates us from God. Jesus came into this world and died on a cross to remove all that. To pay the penalty for our sin, our way of life, our way of doing things. And he says, if you want to turn away from that, you can. If you want to live in the kingdom of God, you can. How? Because I removed the barrier. I removed sin from the picture. How? By dying on the cross for you and rising again paid the penalty. Would you receive that today? I'm going to say a simple prayer. It's a prayer of faith. Step into this moment right now and trust Christ. Turn from doing things your way into the kingdom of God in this very moment, and I promise you, you will become a child of God. Will you pray with me? If you feel that, take these words. Jesus, I repent. I turn into your kingdom to live with you. Jesus, I trust that what you did on the cross was enough to forgive me, to cleanse me, to remove all the sin and the guilt and the shame. I turn from that way of life towards you. Teach me to put on the new nature, Created to be just like you, truly righteous and holy. Teach me to have a character of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, and faithfulness. I trust you with my life. I literally put my life in your hands to live in your kingdom. Thank you for your grace. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Can we give God glory today, guys? Come on, nice and high. Amen. We give God glory. He's doing a work here. If you prayed to receive Christ, we want to put a new believer's Bible in your hands on the way out. All of our campuses, if you're watching online, we want to give you one as well. If you trusted Christ, check that box that says, I trusted him, and put your address in there. We'll send one to you in the mail. Hey, guys, one more time, can we give God glory for what he's doing? Amen.